Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. like a good story, don't we? I do. I hope you do. Uh, we tell stories. We, we read stories of years at Caesarea Maritima out on the coast northwest of Jerusalem. And today we're actually going to read his fifth hearing. Can you believe we've been through four already? Uh, this is Paul's fifth hearing, and he's going to share the gospel by sharing his own story and how that gospel changed his own life. And so that's this is going to be in a, uh, kind of a climax in the book of Acts. This is his last and longest discourse. And uh, just as you read through it, you're going to be reminded of some of his past, uh, his past hearings and defenses that he's given. It's kind of a, a combination or a summation of his life and ministry and all the previous hearings and, and his, his testimony throughout Acts. So it's a really neat... Uh, really neat dis- discourse that we have before us today, and an important one. So, first thing we're going to look at is uh, Paul's hearing before Agrippa. We're just going to read the last few verses of chapter 25, verse 23 through 27. It says, So on the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice came amid great pomp and entered the auditorium, accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city, uh, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought before them. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all you gentlemen present with us, you see this man about whom all the people of the Jews appealed to uh, me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had committed nothing deserving death, and since he himself appealed to the emperor, I, have, I decided to send him. And yet I have nothing definite about him to write to my Lord. Therefore, I've brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him as well. So, uh, with Paul having appealed to Caesar, like we saw last week, and we were kind of introduced to these characters, uh, Agrippa, and Bernice, um, uh, it's now necessary for Festus, this governor, new governor, to develop a detailed report for Caesar. Uh, Paul appealed to Caesar, to the emperor. He's going to go to Rome, but, and, uh, and Festus granted that, but he doesn't know what he's sending him there for. Right? So Paul is innocent, and Festus should have let him go. So this is basically his problem. He got himself into this sticky situation because Paul's innocent, but he wants to please the Jews, as we've discovered. Uh, so he has to explain somewhat embarrassingly why his first trial as a governor led to a defendant's right of appeal. And uh, it's a big deal for him because he better not waste Nero's time. You're sending someone. This is basically Paul being sent to the Supreme Court, even though he's innocent. 
Are you going to waste the judge's time? Why is this even happening in the first place? Why is he sending him? So uh, Festus has no official charge, and he's going to try and fish uh, through another hearing for some credible charge or, or reason to send Paul to Rome, and hopefully he's going to get some backing from some other rulers uh, from Agrippa and uh, his sister Bernice. And uh, when King Agrippa and Bernice come to meet Festus, as we see here, they pay their respects to this new governor in town, and uh, the opportunity presents itself for another hearing. And, and the hearing before Agrippa, this is Agrippa II, by the way, but his, his, uh, his hearing begins with great pomp. Did you catch that? Great pomp. The word pomp just kind of reminds us of a military parade, you know, or uh, some sort of parade with a governor being paraded down the streets and uh, cheering crowds, you know, maybe. Uh, to be honest, it reminds me of a political rally, or there's a governor or, a, or some sort of presidential candidate that comes to town, and there's all the pomp, and the crowds are cheering, right? And there's a show. Basically, that's what's going on here. That's the idea here. And interestingly enough, um, it's, it should remind us of something that took place earlier in Acts, where Agrippa I, Agrippa II's father, uh, put on a show as well. Remember when he came out, decked out in some royal robes that reflected the sun, and everybody was saying, you know, that this is, the, this is a god and not a man. Well, that was the intention behind it. And uh, Agrippa I, his dad, in Caesarea, 15 years ago, was struck down by God. He was eaten by worms for failing to give glory to God. Well, it's basically the same picture you see here, only with his son, Agrippa II. You have Agrippa and these leaders entering with all of their magisterial garb. You know, it's very flashy and fancy. And then here comes... Short, you know, bow-legged, bald Paul in chains. And uh, basically, he's standing before this, this, these leaders, these leaders with, in great pomp, right? So it's a, just quite the picture. At least that's how one early witness of, of Paul described him. Short, bald, and bow-legged. Nothing, not much impressive about him. But uh, let's, keep, let's keep reading on. Verses 1 through 11. Now Agrippa said to Paul... Uh, you are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make a defense. In regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all the customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently, so then all the Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our twelve, twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by the Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them, often 
In all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme, and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. So Paul uh, begins his defense here tactfully and politely before Agrippa. He expresses, uh, I think, is a real, honest gratitude for the opportunity to present his case before Agrippa. Agrippa has a Jewish background. So he's familiar with Old Testament prophecy. He's familiar with the Jews and their customs. I mean, he has jurisdiction over Jerusalem at this time. He's well acquainted with Jewish beliefs. And so Paul really does look forward to sharing the gospel with someone who already has a foundation in Jewish beliefs, in Judaism. And so it's a wonderful opportunity for Paul to share the gospel. And so uh, this kind of led me to a principle this week that uh, I think we, we see come out of these chapters with Paul on trial, and, it, and it's Paul's positive attitude in the face of opposition. He has a positive attitude. I mean, even when his life is on the line, even when he's two years spent in limbo in this prison, like not knowing what's going to happen to him necessarily, he isn't some fear-stricken or self-defensive man. He's not begging to get out of jail. I mean, I probably would be. I would be very self-defensive. I didn't do anything wrong. I would make it all about me. But he's not. This is actually about Jesus, and Paul knows that. This is, an, this is not Paul the martyr with his martyr suffering complex and just you know begging to get out of this. He actually <laughs> sees his trials as an opportunity to be a testimony, to share his testimony. And he sees the opposition here as an opportunity. And I find that really helpful today uh, with where we're at as a country. It's, it's, we need to see these, these doors, how, how, how as the culture grows increasingly dark and hostile to Christianity, we need to remember this is an opportunity to be a witness. This is an opportunity to stand out, to be a light. I mean, never more clearly, I mean, in, in our, our lifetime has the darkness and the light been so... Uh, it's so evident, right? So it's an opportunity. Uh, one man said, the doors of opportunity hang on the hinges of opposition. So be encouraged. We get, to, we get to have an opportunity to witness for Jesus in our culture, and we get to see God's faithfulness. But anyway, after a polite introduction, he begins a brief defense of the Christian faith and, and of his own life and ministry and how he started out as a Pharisee. Um, he begins his story by talking about who he was before Christ. Uh, he, was a, he was a Pharisee, and a Pharisee was the most conservative, orthodox group within Judaism. You know, he, he, was, he knew God's law well. He, he, he vigorously defended it. Paul says he, in Philippians, he was, like, he was a Pharisee. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I mean, he kept the law to a T. And he was blameless before the law. He was zealous for the law. And he makes the point here in verses 4 through 7 that, that everybody knows this about him. Now, Paul's not, you know, a small-town pastor. He's a, he's a very high-profile guy. Everybody knows the Apostle Paul. That's why there's, there's great pomp here today. People want to hear Paul. It's almost like they're, they're treating him as an entertainment piece. Okay? He's a high-profile citizen. Everybody knows his background, but that's going to come into play later in his defense. But also notice how Paul identifies with ethnic Israel and Judaism in general, Jewish, 
the Jewish belief system, the Old Testament, Judaism. But just like in his defense in Jerusalem, he, he identifies with Israel with the use of the word our. Did you catch that? Our faith. Our fathers. Our 12 tribes. He says, my own nation. Uh, it's important to identify with those you're trying to reach. I think that's one thing that Paul is doing. But there's another thing he's doing, and it's that he's demonstrating more importantly, that Christianity is not a religious sect like Tertullus claimed that it was a couple of weeks ago. It's not a, a new religious sect. It's, it's, it's not a new belief system and, and like the chief priests were accusing Christianity of. It actually comes from within the fold of Judaism as the, the hope of the Jews. I mean, Christianity is an extension of or fulfillment of the hope that the Jews have been promised all along. It's, it goes back to the Jewish fathers, back to Abraham, right? That, that Abraham would have a descendant, Christ, right, who is going to be a blessing to the nations, not just Israel. And so Paul's not, he's making the case that he's not betraying the Jews. He is a faithful Jew. He's more faithful than the chief priest because he's actually responded to God's progressed, progressive revelation in Christ. And so he, he understands Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jewish hope of the resurrection. He actually says he has the audacity to believe that Creator God has the power to raise the dead. He says, why is it considered incredible among you people if God raises the dead? I mean, if He created everything, can't He raise the dead? Right? I mean, it's... It, it, so that's anyway, that's, what he, that's his mindset. Paul, although he wasn't always this way, he wasn't always a believer in Christ. Before Christ, he, he explains how he was no different. He thought that God actually wanted him to persecute Christians and try to get them to blaspheme Christ and renounce Christ. And uh, in fact, it was the chief priests, he said, that he received authority from, a commission from, to actually leave Jerusalem and go to Damascus, go to foreign cities, and persecute Christians. So he wasn't just persecuting Christians. He was so zealous for for the law and for Judaism, that he actually went elsewhere. He went to different cities to persecute Christians. But that's, on his way to Damascus, that's where his story took a dramatic turn, verse 12 through 18. While so engaged as I was, journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, at midday, right, uh, at lunchtime, when the sun is high, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. So it wasn't just Paul who saw it. Those people who were with him saw it too. Uh, and when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. And from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive, get this, forgiveness of sins and an inheritance 
among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So Paul shares his story. He's just sharing his stories. He's, he's talked about him before Christ. Now he's talking about how he got saved. It's his testimony. It's Paul's uh, Damascus Road experience that we've talked about. Uh, we've prob- this is the third time, I think, in the book of Acts that he's shared this testimony about how he got saved. And it's where Jesus stopped him. And the horse he was on, cold in their tracks. I, I imagine he was on a horse and he was thrown to the ground. And it, you know, when the Shekinah glory of God shone around him. And it seems that while Paul was en route to Damascus to persecute Christians, that Paul knew in his heart, he knew in his conscience, that what he was doing was wrong. And I say that because of what Jesus said to him. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Right? So he's... In his heart, he knew he was kind of rebelling against God and what God was trying to convince him of, of the truth that Jesus is the Christ, but he's still doing it anyway. And so um, uh, I think Paul is wrestling with God and whether this whole Christianity thing is true or not. And uh, I think the main stimulus for this, this prick in his conscience was Stephen. Remember Stephen, I think it was uh, Acts chapter 7, the first Christian martyr. Saul, back then it was his name, right? He went by the name Saul, now it's Paul. But he was holding the coats of the people who were stoning Stephen, and Stephen gave a, a great defense of Christianity and the faith, and he shared the gospel. And, and Stephen was even, his face, it said, it shone like an angel on that day. And he could see into heaven, he could see Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne of God. And so I think Paul witnessed Stephen's death, and it was still bothering him because Stephen was a faithful witness. And now now God's going to take this great antagonist of Christianity, and he's going to take him, he's going to make him the greatest protagonist. Paul's going to go from antagonist to protagonist. So um, goads, what were goads? Goads were sharp, uh, pointed sticks that were used to drive livestock that might be pulling a plow or a cart or something if an animal or an ox didn't want to move forward and and instead they wanted to kick back or something like that or they just wanted to stop, the goad would prod them into obedience. It would prod them into obeying their shepherd the hard way, right? Uh, So to kick against the goads would only make things more painful for the animal. It would drive the goad into their flesh. But, and the Greeks picked up on this. They would use it as an agricultural metaphor to convey the idea of a person fighting against the gods. Right? The, the animal is the person who's fighting against the gods. God's trying to poke him, and, he, and they're fighting against it. That's what was happening with Paul. You, just a question. Do you and I ever do that? You ever try to do things your way, and God has to goad you? Yeah. I know I do. Um, does it happen daily? <laughs> Just saying. Um, sinners we are, right? But Jesus was saying that Paul was fighting against God's plan for his life. Paul was fighting against Jesus' will for him, and he finally had to just prod him in a direction, in a, into a new direction, in a new mission that he was forced to follow. Okay, And this, this new Commission. It's funny, he was commissioned by the chief priests, and now he's recommissioned by the, the great high priest. I think that's just an interesting uh, parallel, there, but parallel there. But 
Paul now would be an apostolic minister and witness of the resurrected Christ before Jews and Gentiles. In verse 18, my favorite verse in this, this chapter, uh, this is one of the best summary statements of gospel ministry that there is. Look at verse 18. Paul said Jesus sent him to do this, to open the eyes of the blind, basically. Remember when Paul was blinded in that Damascus Road experience? Yeah. I think that was a, a, a message to Paul saying, look, you're blind, you need, you need Jesus. But he, he came to open their eyes so they would turn from, so that Jew and Gentile, anybody, right, would turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to the dominion of God. And the theme of light and darkness is just such a, it's such a theme throughout Luke and Acts. And it's Old Testament prophecy, that's why it's a theme. But it keeps coming up that Jesus was going to be a light to the Gentiles. And, and what we found is that, to the to, to, to the Israel too, but what we've discovered is that as the Gospels proclaimed, who is continually being more and more blinded? It's, it's the Jews, right? And actually the Acts is going to end on that note too, that the Jews are uh, suffering blindness. But uh, he's going to quote Isaiah, and, and we'll get there. But um, through ministry, by God's Spirit and grace... Right? This isn't just us on our own opening people's eyes. It's, it's ministry. When we, when we minister to people, we share the gospel, we share the word of God. By God's grace and by God's spirit, we want to help open people's eyes to see Jesus for who he really is. That he is God. And that his, his, uh, his, his death on the cross wasn't an accident, but that's actually God's fulfillment. That was God's plan for him to come and to die for our sins, and that through faith in Him, we can be born again. When we come to faith in Christ, right, we go from being blind, we have our eyes open, the, the veil is lifted, and, and we're born again spiritually by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, and God's Spirit seals us as God's children, as God's own possession. And that's why it says we're transferred from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God, right? We become children of God, heirs of God, and, and heirs of an internal inheritance. And so we're uh, thus transferred from one kingdom to another. And so we're, we're sanctified, it, it says, set apart for God. Um, Paul says we also receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance. Uh, forgiveness of sins? That is what it is, right? Your sins are forgiven. Is that, is that not good news through faith in Jesus and what he has done you can have your sins forgiven you forgiven you can be released from the punishment of your sins by the holy judge of the universe he can say to those of us who are in Christ that our sins are paid for on the cross paid in full it's a pretty amazing thing isn't it you can have a, a perfect position before God Romans 8.1, let's say there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, as you've been forgiven. You know, I think John Stott said once that he could, he could empty the mental wards in Great Britain if he could just convince people that they were forgiven. Because in their conscience, they experience the guilt of it. The guilt, their guilt before God 
and they don't know what to do with it. And they're like David in Psalm 32, and they just, you know, they, they have this chronic fatigue, and they, they you know, they, they, they're just like depression. It leads to depression. And if he could just, David says actually that, you know, when he, he came out of that, it was because he, he, he laid himself bare before God. He quit hiding his sin, and he said, God, I'm a sinner, and I need forgiveness. And he was restored, not only spiritually, but physiologically. I mean, physically, he went from this chronic fatigue and depression to life. He found joy again. He could sing again. Man, if we could convince people of forgiveness in Christ. Then you have the inheritance aspect, referring to eternal life. Heavenly rewards. We're going to live forever with God and His kingdom with rewards that we don't deserve. It's going to be incredible. Such good news, such hope, right? Isn't this is the gospel. We get to, this is the good news we get to share with people. Eternal life, a free gift by God's grace for those who trust in Jesus. Let's keep that message simple, huh? Uh, verses 19 through 23 now. We'll continue on with uh, Paul's life after Christ. So, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, uh, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying, both to small and to great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ would suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light. There's that word again, light, both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. So again, this is Paul after Christ, right? post Christ. He's born again, and he's, he's just as fully devoted to God uh, as he was before. I mean, obviously, it's, it's changed because Christ has come. There's a new covenant. But he still is fully devoted to God, and he went and he shared the message faithfully that men should repent, that they should re- return to God. They should turn to God and perform deeds consistent with repentance. Basically, uh, what happens when someone turns to faith in Christ because they've been born of God by the Holy Spirit... Right? He's the Holy Spirit. Um, we, be, we begin to live godly and righteously. Titus says that um, God's grace in Christ teaches us to live righteously and godly in the present age. Uh, because we have the Holy Spirit in us, He teaches us what it looks like to walk with God. So, uh, uh, God's grace is not an excuse to sin, but it actually teaches us to do the opposite, to not sin. Uh, And part of the reason I think Paul brings this up specifically, uh, the sanctification part of it, uh, repentance, is because his prosecutors prosecutors wanted him dead for uh, their misunderstanding of his teachings. Remember earlier they were saying that, you know, Christ uh, taught people to be, to forsake the law. They, They thought that Paul's teaching of grace taught people to be lawless, right? But... Paul says, no, actually, it's, it's the exact opposite. He's teaching people to walk with God. Just because we're not under the law in the Old Testament doesn't mean that we're lawless anymore. We're, we're now under the law of Christ, according to Galatians chapter 6. And we actually fulfill the law as we walk 
by the Spirit, and we fulfill the law of the Spirit of life, which is greater than the, the law itself. So uh, getting into some more theology there that you can read about in Romans 7 and 8 and Galatians. But uh, Paul explains uh, that for his faithful proclamation, basically because he wouldn't shut up about Jesus, they, they arrest him. But with God's help, he continues to testify to the small and the great. You know what he's talking about there? To the small being the average everyday citizen. To the poor, you know. And then the great being the Festuses, the Felix, and the Caesars in the world. And we all are going to get into heaven only by grace. It doesn't matter if you're small. It doesn't matter if you're great. We're all going to stand before God's throne. And on that day, we all better say, Jesus, that's my only reason I can enter heaven. It's the only reason I can stand before God, because of what Jesus did for me. And so he concludes his argument uh, by uh, affirming that his ministry, his teachings, in full accord with what the Moses and the prophets said would take place. Jesus was going to suffer. He was going to rise again. And that was a huge stumbling block to the Jews. They tripped over that. And, uh, but it was good news for everyone who welcomed it. Now let's look at uh, the response to Paul. He has given his defense. Now let's see the response in verses 24 through 32. While Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters. And I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice. For this hasn't been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Agrippa replied to Paul, In, in a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would wish to God that whether in a short time or a long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these change. And the chains. And the king stood up, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had gone aside, they began talking to one another, saying, This man is doing nothing, is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So, now Paul's innocence reaffirmed right there. In response to Paul, Festus speaks up first. Actually, he just kind of cuts Paul off. Paul is used to being cut off when he starts to speak a little too much truth, right? Uh, they, just, they just stop him. And he says, Paul, you're... You're out of your mind. It actually says he yelled. He said it in a loud voice. You're out of your mind. You're mad, right? Uh, your learning is, is driving you insane. And that's kind of a, a, that's a pretty common response, isn't it, from the world? You share the gospel with someone and they say, this guy's insane. This guy's nuts, right? That's a pretty typical reaction. But in response to that, here's what Paul says. Here's what Paul points to. He points to evidence. He points to truth. He points to facts, historical facts in history that these things happened. Isn't that great? Here's the reason I'm not out of my mind. He says, these words that I've spoken to you are truthful and rational. Right? 
They're, they're words of sober truth. They're true and reasonable. And the reason for this is you can't brush this off as insane, Festus, is because this didn't happen in a corner. Everything that has happened with Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ministry for three years, uh, you know, the, 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 what happened at Pentecost, all of these things happened publicly. And everybody knows it. Even Jesus, resurrected Jesus, appeared to 500 over 500 people at one time. Those witnesses, a lot of them, it's only been 30 years, a lot of those witnesses are still alive. This wasn't done in a corner, so you cannot consider it insane. It's rational. Okay? Uh, even Paul's own conversion, we saw, didn't happen privately. It wasn't like Paul was in a closet praying. He was on the Damascus Road going there with a cohort of men who saw this light from heaven flash around him, and they all fell down. Some didn't understand the words that were said, but they still knew that something took place, and this was not just Paul's personal experience. This was the real deal. Everyone knows this is true, including King Agrippa, who's been in the area for a while. He knew it. No one can deny what has happened. People today will say, yeah, well, what about this? What about that? Well, how encouraging that 30 years after, you know, we try to share the gospel with them. They come with all, all sorts of excuses. But you cannot deny the historicity of the resurrection. You can't do it. Not even these leaders, these, these great men, 30 years after the resurrection, could deny that it happened. It's true. It's a fact. Paul then turns to Agrippa. And, he's, and Agrippa, he knows Old Testament prophecy. He's very familiar with Jewish beliefs. And he says, Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? He takes him back to the Word of God now. He went to history, now he's going to the Word of God. Do you believe what the prophets have said about Jesus? I know you do. And deep down, Agrippa knows that he does too, right? And I, I can sense, you can see the pressure on Agrippa. Paul, is now, or Paul has put Agrippa on the spot. And he has to make a decision. Do you believe in Jesus or not? All the evidence is there, Agrippa. And Agrippa... If he, if he responds positively or negatively, he's in trouble with somebody. Right? Rome or the Jews or whoever. And so what does Agrippa do? Does he say, I believe? He falls on his knees and he surrenders his life to the Lord. Does he do that? His conscience. You know his conscience is convicting him. What does he do? He's a good politician, so he doesn't even answer. He doesn't even respond to the question. He avoids the question. He just, he literally, he stands up and he ends the hearing. That's, that's basically what he does. He says, ah, you're not going to convince me in that short a time. You know, and I know the Spirit of God was working on that man. But isn't that what we do? Isn't that what a lot of people do? They just procrastinate. Well, I just need to hear a little bit more. Someday I'll believe. Someday I'll, you know, on my deathbed I'll give my life to the Lord. What if, what if you never make it to your deathbed? Saw a video this week, 28-year-old girl working out in the gym, dropped dead. Aneurysm? I don't know. Don't procrastinate. Anyway, 
Agrippa ends by saying that Paul, Paul's innocent. He might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So it's unnecessary for Paul to go to Rome, but we're going to go there with him in, a, in January, hopefully. Uh, Lord willing. Uh, next week, I plan to revisit our theme for the year, Trust More, Fear Less, one last time. Then we'll have a Christmas sermon. And then uh, in January, we'll resume our our study of the book of Acts. We only have a couple more chapters. So uh, pray for me as I prepare for all of our teachings, our good good teachings that we get to enjoy next year. I'm getting excited about it, but I'm not going to tell you all exactly what I'm going to teach on. So uh, just pray for me. Um, in application, if you've ever shared the gospel with people, you know you've experienced these reactions. You've got some people who believe, and it's just such great joy. You know, they, they turn from light to darkness. God gives them new life. It's amazing. But most people aren't like that, are they? Most people are like Festus and Agrippa. They either think you're crazy, or they're, you know, they're kind of curious, and they're struck by it, but they just don't fully embrace Jesus. They just don't do it. And, and, and you know, because of these responses, I think we tend to second-guess ourselves. We tend to complicate things. You know, what if I'd said this different or that different? And, you know, I'm encouraged by what Jesus said to Paul back in Jerusalem. Look, you did a great job. You testified about me. You know, he might not have thought he did a good job, but Jesus said he did. You know, you, you testify. Don't complicate it. Be encouraged by Paul's experience, that Paul experienced everything we do, all the same responses we do. And then... The, the big application for today is to share your story of God's grace. That's what Paul did. Share your story of God's grace. Share your testimony with someone. Uh, you know, share, share with others how God took you from darkness to light. Like Paul, you know, sharing your personal story. It was the personal element in his gospel presentation that made this, this, this gospel presentation so powerful. It was that personal element. And uh, sharing your testimony is one of the most powerful ways that you can help others come to know Jesus. Um, some of you guys might need to oh, put your testimony on paper for the first time if you never have. And you can take a, a you know, a, a hint from Paul here and just, you know, if you want to know, like, how, I don't know how to share my testimony. I don't even know where to start. Well, all Paul did was he shared about who he was before Christ, how he was converted to Christ, and then what life was like after Christ, I think that's a good place to start and, and keep it simple. But keep, always keep a focus on God's grace, too. First Peter 3.15 says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that is in you. You guys have hope this morning? You have hope of forgiveness, hope of eternal life, hope of an inheritance with God on a new heaven and new earth someday? I hope you do. I hope you do. Real briefly, I want to share a little bit of my testimony with you. It's been a long time since I've shared my testimony with you. Uh, four years, actually. Almost. Exactly. When I first got here, I shared my testimony with you, but we have a lot of new faces and... Um, I thought I could do a little bit of that today. Um, I'll remind you that I was a good little Catholic boy growing up. 
Um, I grew up in church. I was a fairly religious young boy. You know, I, was, I was the kid who always had his room, kept his room clean, you know, and always, you know, I was so afraid of getting in trouble. I hated the guilty conscience thing. I just always wanted to do what was right. I wanted to be a good person. You know, I wanted to do the best I could. And uh, not saying I never got in trouble. But I, when I was a kid, I remember laying in bed. I remember praying hard. You know, and I remember doing my best to do whatever I was told to do. You know, by my parents or my, my, my instructors or my, the church officials, whoever it was. And uh, always wanted to do what was right. But whether I did or not is one thing, but I never remember hearing growing up a clear gospel presentation that salvation was by grace through faith in Christ. Now, I might have heard it somewhere, but I don't remember that at all. And so as a kid, I was always stuck on this religious treadmill because I was a people pleaser. I was a very moral young boy. And I always thought there's something special about that kid, you know? She didn't talk like that, but, you know, I was, just, I was a pretty good kid, according to the people around me. And uh, I guess... It threw me on a religious treadmill. And the way I remember thinking of the way that you get to heaven was Jesus died for the sins of the world. So he basically opened up the door to heaven, and now I had to work my way through it. Does that make sense? So Jesus unlocked the door to heaven, but I had to open it by doing religious things. You know, it's putting money in the plate, it's, it's, it's confession, it's this prayer to pray, it's one more mass to attend, it's one more communion to take, it's one more sacrament to perform, and it was just, and that's a fairly accurate description of how you get to heaven in the Catholic Church, it's just always one more thing. You know, you have to keep up. And by the time I was in high school, I just didn't want anything to do with it anymore. My heart started to move away from all that in middle school. Uh, my heart and mind moved away from all that, whatever I thought Christianity was, and I hopped on a secular train, and I became very suspicious and crit critical of any religion. I basically went from being uh, a legalist to being lawless. I just went the opposite extreme, you know, and I, I did whatever would make me happy. I just began to live life my way. They call that today living your truth, Right? Uh, doing whatever makes you feel good. And I, I can tell looking back that uh, just, it was so funny, you know, looking back, I can tell how I was searching for identity and meaning and purpose in everything that I tried. I tried a lot of different things. I mean, I tried different peer groups, you know, like the skaters, the jocks, the, the, cow, the hicks, you know, I tried a lot of different things. And I can look back and see that I was searching for purpose. I was searching for identity. I was searching for acceptance and significance and security somewhere. And it's kind of heartbreaking to look back on that. And uh, uh, I guess by the time I graduated high school, I pretty much found most of my happiness in relationships, you know, not doing things God's way. And then alcohol as well. I was actually voted the biggest alcoholic in my graduating class, and I got a nice little plaque for it. Um, I remember, I, would, I haven't shared this with you guys, but actually, we were, we were driving down the street one day, me and my friends, and uh, 
it was at night, but I took a beer bottle and I pegged what I thought was a church's mailbox with it. And basically what I did was just peg the church mailbox that I thought that God was going to use to save me. And uh, I remember my buddy in the front seat said, dude, that was a church's mailbox. You know, he's a Christian kind of guy. And, uh, and I said, I don't care. And you know what was going on in my heart? Like, dude, I just hit a, I just dinged a church's mailbox. And I, in my heart, I said, I don't care. Out loud, I said, I don't care. But you know what was going on in my heart? In my heart, it was like, I'm a guilty sinner. And I was kicking against the go-ads then. You know, the goats, whatever you want to call them. Well, it wasn't long before I found myself on my knees in my college apartment. I'd moved to Lincoln, Nebraska, and got a, you know, I was going to school for something I really didn't want to go to school for. I realized that one month into college. I had a broken relationship. And I found myself climbing out of bed in the middle of the night and getting on my knees. And I, and I literally, I said, God, I don't even know if you're real. I said, but if you are, you have to show me who you are because what I'm doing isn't working. You know, I didn't know if God was, I didn't know if I was going to become a Muslim or a Mormon or a Christian or what, or some sort of New Ager. I just, I didn't know who God was. But within a few days uh, from, you know, that big moment in my life, I moved back home and I started farming again, which is what I should have done anyway, but. Anyway, God began to place genuine Christians in my life. Like almost immediately, I move home and God starts to put Christians, real ones, you know, who lived out their faith in my life. And one of them was a coworker, a Christian coworker, and uh, his name was Josh. And he's sitting there on lunch break at the desk, and he's just got this book in his hand, and it's called Creation versus Evolution. You know, it's got dinosaurs and stuff on the front. And so I'm thinking, huh? I don't want to read that, you know, so I start talking to him about it a little bit, and he says, I'll let you read it when I'm done, and uh, anyway, I get it from him, and I take it home, and I'm reading it, and I'm reading it while I'm sitting in my deer blind hunting, I was getting into archery then, and so I'm just, I devoured that book, and I, I remember thinking after reading that book, I am way too complex to be an accident, there has to be a creator, I mean, the guy was talking about your hand, you know, and how you can move your hand, and how you, you don't even have to think of it. You know, I'm moving my hand. I don't even have to try. I just do it, right? It's, it's instantaneous. The synapse response, whatever. And then, and then the eyeball. How, comp, how the, the eyeball just, and how it made Darwin cold when he thought about the eyeball. And so after that, I thought, you know, if I'm, if I'm created, then I, there must be a God who loves me. Or else why would he create me? Why would God create me if he didn't love me and want a relationship with me? After that, I went to taxidermy school after, in the fall after some, the farming. And uh, it was a three-month taxidermy school. My, my instructor, Jerry, he was a, just an outstanding individual, Christian gentleman, and a very amazing witness for Christ in that school. And he took us through uh, the Truth Project on Wednesday nights, I think it was. Ten weeks, 
I think it was, 10-week series, Truth Project, and really helped me understand Christian worldview, what a Christian worldview is. And after I graduated, he gave me a Bible, paperback Bible that said, keep looking up. And I took that Bible home, and I was still hunting, you know, and I, I devoured that Bible. And if I was on my lunch break, I was reading that Bible. It didn't matter any downtime I had, I was reading that Bible, it seemed like. And I, it fell apart on me, literally. But um, during this time, I was also invited by a friend to the Berean Church and Alliance. Remember the one I pegged? I thought I pegged, anyway. Um, and uh, I started to attend that church, and this was just a really deep time of searching for me. And I remember... Re- comparing the teachings in the Bible with what I was taught growing up. And I began to see a lot of inconsistencies. And that can happen in any church, right? But I began to see the inconsistencies. And I had to come to a point of decision. But beside that, you have to know too that I started to get back on the religious treadmill. I was going to church again. I was reading my Bible. I was putting $20 in the plate again. I was still dead spiritually, still blind. I'm seeking, and I started to get back on that religious treadmill. My friend, they shared the gospel with me, but I don't know if my heart was ripe for it yet. I don't think it was. I remember praying a prayer, but nothing changed at all. I I didn't know if my, I don't think I understood it then. The moment that really stands out to me was when I was driving down the road. I was driving down Kansas Street in Alliance. And I, at this time, I was working on the railroad, too. I've done a lot of things, right? Um, I was working afternoon shifts at this time in my life. And I was on call, and basically I had four to six hours a day to read my Bible. I kid you not. Um, I was driving down Kansas Street, and there was like a two-minute snippet on the radio about how uh, Jesus paid it all. You know, I did just a little two-minute snippet. Jesus paid it all. This, this old man from back in eastern Nebraska shared the gospel, and, I, and, and, he, and he said, Jesus paid it all. And I just went, that makes sense. <laughs> you know, it was like the light came on. And I was like, yes, that makes sense. He died for me because I couldn't be good enough. And it was at that moment I think I got off the religious treadmill. It wasn't, you know, a couple days later, and I'm, I'm listening, here I am, same work truck, about the same place, and I'm listening to another radio preacher that the church that I went to supported. And you can listen to it online too if you want to. I think it's 105.3, something like that. They got some preachers on at night. But uh, you need to know that after the light came on there, it was like the Spirit of God illuminated the Scriptures for me. It was like the Scriptures just began to open up for me. And then I learned later that's called the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. He helps you understand God's Word. And it was like two or three days later, and I'm listening to the preachers again, and, and I am just encouraged to, just convicted to give my life to Christ and to be the same man that I am on Monday that I am on Sunday, and it was all over from there. I was a total new creation, not just positionally, but conditionally. You know, my life just changed dramatically. I have one of those dramatic, life-changing conversion experiences where I could sense something had changed inside my heart. It was tangible, guys. Uh, my conscience softened, and I, I wasn't perfect. I'm not an angel today, right? But 
there was a notable difference in my life. And uh, such a thrill to even talk about it. You know, I need to get back to my first love sometimes. But Jesus and his word became everything to me, and I couldn't get enough of Jesus. And, you know, maybe, maybe you're here today. You're a lot like the younger me. Um, you come to church, yes, but you're spiritually blind. Maybe it seems like the messages go over your head and you're just not picking up. You're just not on the same frequency. Uh, maybe uh, you're, just, you're still trying to appease God, thinking, you know, maybe my, my baptism, maybe my, my, my offerings, my gifts to the church are going to appease God. Or maybe you're just the opposite. You know, maybe you're the, the younger but older me trying to run from God in rebellion. Like one, was a, one side of me was a good moral person that was sinning against God through pride, and one was uh, rebelling against God. And maybe you're the one in rebellion and your guilty conscience keeps pricking you. Something's not right between you and God. And you need to repent and you need to turn to God and find meaning and purpose and hope. You know you were made for a relationship with God. And if that's you, I want you to know this morning, the Bible says you were created for a relationship with God. But you can only have a relationship with God through what Jesus Christ has done for you. And so I'd encourage you to put your faith in Him today and uh, mark it on your calendar. Because I don't know what day I did it. (laughs) I wish I would have done that. But mark it on your calendar if you have more questions maybe you are like Agrippa and honestly you do have more questions hey come talk to me or talk to talk to someone in the pew next to you there's a lot of good Christians that can share the gospel with you